Hello, everyone. Welcome back to Big Fat Five. This past week, we lost a very important member of the drumming community, Dom Famularo. Known as drumming's global ambassador, Dom spent the last 30 years traveling the globe, preaching the gospel of drumming. As an intense performer, Dom remains one of the most respected solo drum artists in the world, with a career built solely upon his unique skills as a drummer, educator, author, and motivational speaker. Dom was a guest on the show in 2021, and it was, of course, a great chat chock full of life lessons. It was back before I asked the guests to pick five records that shaped him into the players they are today. So instead I provided prompts, which I read aloud during the show, and they answered them accordingly. I learned that Dom's cancer had returned back in June of this year when I reached out regarding a little secret project I'm working on. And after hearing about his health, Big Fat Snare Drum offered to organize a fundraiser to offset some of the costs of his cancer treatment. And in typical selfless fashion, Dom kindly opted that we instead raise awareness for his nonprofit Can Do Musos, which is an organization uh, for disabled musicians. And you can find all the links to that in the show notes. And you can donate directly at CanDoMusos.com. I've learned a lot from Dom far beyond the parameters of this conversation you're about to hear. And so if you enjoy this podcast, Dom has indirectly affected your life as well. So I donated myself, and if you have the ability, I encourage you to at least check out the website. I have updated this chat a little bit, and of course wanted to shoot it to the top of my feed, not only to promote Dom and the wonderful person that he was, um, but also his nonprofit, and to re-air an episode that will just most certainly leave you smiling and feeling like a better person. So here are the five well, I think it's some of the things that shaped Dom Famularo into the amazing musician he was. And uh, thank you for everything, Dom. I, I hope you rest in peace. Cheers. So before we get to your five, I do want to get your thoughts on this. And we've had a lot of people write in expressing how they have trouble figuring out where their heroes end and they themselves begin. So when you're talking to your students about, watch this drummer, digest their stuff, how do you talk to them about the ways they can do that while still keeping who they are in check, if that makes sense? It makes total sense, a great question, Ben. A couple things, A, I used um, the three-step process. The first step is imitation. There's nothing wrong with imitation. When I was younger, I tried to imitate and steal certain patterns from these great players, whether it was Buddy Rich or Steve Gadd or Tony Williams or Max Roach. These players, I'd, I'd listen to them and they'd play a fill or a pattern or a groove and I would try to imitate exactly what they were doing. Well, my success rate was never great because to imitate those greats was really difficult. I didn't have the skills of what they were doing, but the imitation part was important. I was imitating, so I was getting, stepping into their world. So imitation allows you to step into a different thought process. The second part, second step, is assimilation. Once you imitate it, you start to take in that idea really well, it starts to become a way of life and a part of you. You're assimilating now that Tony Williams lick. I'm not Tony Williams, but those flams between snare and, and that ride cymbal, all of a sudden I was having more control over. It was kind of becoming my thing, 
but it was definitely Tony's, you know, I stole it from Tony. The third step is innovation. Innovation then is how do I now take that idea and put it in a way that's my own thing, that's going to break the rules of who I am and step out to me to experience that unused potential that I'm always trying to step into. So from imitation to assimilation to innovation, that's a journey that I tell everybody there's nothing wrong with that. And even to this day, after you know, 56 years of me playing professionally at the age of 12, I'll listen to a young player, whether it's in person, on the internet, in a concert, someone much younger than me, and I'll go, I got to imitate that. That was cool. And then I'll take that and continue that same process. And that, I believe, is the journey of art. If you are desiring to be a constant student and you want to continue to grow, that'll be a process that you'll continue on, hopefully, up until the day that you die. Well, there you go. We should not be getting any more questions about that anymore, because that's the answer, I would say. Um, well, yeah, let's just jump into your five. Um, and so, a specific groove that completely changed the way you think about drums. And I think a lot of people, you have a few drummers on here that I think some people are nervous to say, because they think that everyone's going to say it, but they are so important. And this was Steve Gadd, of course. So, 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover by Paul Simon. What was it about that song that really spoke to you? There's a, there's a couple of things, man. And it, it, the song is important because it is historically important for drummers to have to pass through that portal. If you want to become a painter, you're going to have to study Da Vinci. You're going to have to study Monet. You're going to have to study these greats because of the great paintings that they did. So you got to go back to that painting and you got to study it. You got to study the Mona Lisa. You know, if you want to paint a face and have that level of depth of emotion or questionable mystique, you got to study the Mona Lisa. Yep. So with this, for example, and I'm not ashamed to say that I was one of the children that at, at the age of 10 years old, I heard the Beatles on the Ed Sullivan Show, and that's what sucked me into music. I heard that band play. I was 10. I said, man, this is incredible. I said, I want to play music. So I was pulled into music because of that event that 70-plus million people watched on a Sunday night in 19, February of 1964. So with that, I'm proud of the fact that I was influenced by that. 50 Ways to Leave Your Lover is important because Steve, when Steve came out with this groove, Steve did something that was so deep at such a high level. He didn't just come in there and play that groove. He asked Paul Simon, what's the song about? And Paul said, well, I, I, I broke up with a girl and it was you know, really kind of such a deep relationship. And we've all gone through that where we've broken up with someone and it really kind of hurt. He was in a point of hurt. And then in that point of hurt, he found a, a ray of hope that lifted him up out of that hurt. And then he went back to that, you know, kind of rethinking about that point and then coming out of that. So when Steve listened to that and heard what he was saying, he thought of that first part, that sad part, as a funeral march in New Orleans, this cadence funeral. And what they played in that second line drumming is a cadence. They marched with the casket to the gravesite, very, very sad. And then when they realize they're going to celebrate life, they walk back from the grave you know, site to a party and they play happy music. So Steve kind of felt that. So he kind of went in there and played this. He played that groove that put everybody in this sad, you know, reflecting state of mind. Then the second part of the groove, don't be going to back, Jack. Yep. I don't want to be coy, Roy. He puts this celebratory 
life is going to still happen, even though we experience sad things. We've got to lean to it. So the depth of Paul Simon's song and what Steve Gadd was able to feel from that took this song and totally changed the way we think because he didn't play a stock groove in that first part. Steve stepped emotionally into his skills as an artist, not just as a drummer, as an artist to feel the bigger picture and come up with the groove and communication that he needed to acknowledge that emotion. Slip out the back, Jack. Make a new plan, Stan. You don't need to be coy, Roy. Just get yourself free. Oh, my gosh. You feel lifted at that point. Absolutely. If the hair is not rising on your arms and your body, you're not feeling the lift of like, you know, we're all going to be through difficult times. There's got to be hope. Hope springs eternal Let's grab hope. And even as we express through this pandemic that we have, mm. there is absolute great hope that's coming out of this. There have been great things that have come out of this pandemic. Have we lost 700,000 people? Absolutely. That is incredibly sad. But what good that has come out of this has been understandings of maybe rediscovering who we are and who we didn't know that we were. Absolutely. Um, so the next one is... A favorite Phil choice moment from a certain record, and I know that some of these questions are so hard. And I'm sure if I were to have you back on in a week, it'd be, it'd be totally, different. totally different. So it's really just you know, did you have Cheerios or Frosted Flakes in the morning? It's like who knows. So this is Chucky's e's in love, and again, the great Steve Gadd. Uh, yeah. But what what part of the song did you kind of want to focus on? The whole song's great. What's important about Chucky's e's in love is that, and why Gadd comes up again is this was the time now in the '70s where as I was growing up, this was very influential in my youth. And here I'm playing drums, I'm starting to play, I live on Long Island, I'm starting to play with B.B. With King, I'm starting to play with Lionel Hampton, I'm, get, I'm doing some jingle dates in New York where I'm getting called to do all these different commercials, and I'm, I'm teaching, I've got my own band, I'm like, you know, stuff's happening. And Steve kind of pulled us out of a normal way of thinking. There was this whole new thing that Gad opened up. Gad was the first one to put that 10-inch tom in that first position. Every 10-inch tom that was made before them was a concert tom, which was a, a drum that had only a top head. I was there when Gad took that 10-inch concert tom and went to Professional Percussion Center in New York City and asked them to put a bottom head on it, where initially they said, 
a bottom head. You don't put a bottom head on a concertom. And Steve said, I know that. I just want to kind of hear what it sounds like. And the guy behind the counter said, Steve, it's a concert time. You don't put bottom heads. This was like no vision at all. And Steve said, oh, I know. And Steve was very polite. I know that. I just kind of want to hear what it sounds like. I'll pay you whatever it costs just to put a bottom head on it. Well, the guy kind of a little bit aggravated, drills it in and puts a bottom <laughs> head on it. And then Steve kind of takes it and tunes it up a little bit more. And I kind of held the drum and Steve hit it. And you heard the drum go, doo. It like attacked and then dropped. And the guy behind the counter held his head and went, oh my gosh. And Steve said, that's perfect. How much do I owe you? And Steve then put that as the first tom. So it went from a 10-inch tom. Then Steve went to 12. Then Steve had 13 and 14 he wanted to have. In the studios, he wanted to have that 10, 12, 13, 14. Well, the 13 and 14, he couldn't get legs long enough, so he created a mount that would be a hanging drum mount that he could hang his 13 and 14. So he created the 10, and then puts the hanging mount in there. So Steve's kind of creating and changing the art form, and then we hear him recording with this kind of skit on tunes like Chucky's In Love, and you heard not only Steve playing a certain way, but him evolving the art form of modern drum set, he's at the freaking cusp of like a tsunami making change in the grooves, the fills, the actual drum set itself. There was, you, you, you were witnessing massive movement that was going on. That was incredibly inspiring. And it'll play certain fills in there between hi-hat and snare that were just never thought of before. Absolutely. Well, here we go. Chucky's in love. the song he plays a couple fills where he plays like these 16th notes between hi-hat and snare and he just plays it just so comfortably that he puts this double stroke rudiment in there that's a double stroke roll but not starting right right left left it starts right left left right right so he inverts the double stroke roll between hi-hat and snare man we heard this with my friend what the hell is going on here well it was absolutely incredible and he's still that way i just heard him uh Two weeks ago with James Taylor, they were playing here on Long Island, and Steve called me up and said, Dom, I'm in town. Are you around? I said, yes, I am. Bang, hopped in my car, drove down, and heard him play. And it was a 13-piece band that uh, James Taylor was traveling with. And Steve found a way of playing the exact part inside the guitar players, the bass players, the vocalists that they had, the horn players, the keyboard player. Steve found the holes to fill in, and then he found other holes to leave alone. 
that is that, that's looking at the music from 35,000 feet and seeing the bigger picture and saying, okay, I'm going to I'm going to make this feel right for whatever it takes and whatever it doesn't take. Yeah. <laughs> No, I only got to talk to him once on the phone is when we were sending him from Big Fat Snare Drum some gear. And so he called me. It was from an unknown number. And just the way he was talking, he just the way his his mind works. And I don't mean this in a bad way. He's just a slow talker. He's just always chill. It explained to me why he can just sit in a groove and knows how to assess the situation because he's just never he never loses his cool, at least in the conversation we had. I've known Steve since the mid-70s, and he is exactly that way. I've been to his home. I know his kids, his wife, Carol. It, it, it's, it's, he's always consistently that way. He's at a plane of just, he lives only in the moment. And this was an important part of the discussion that I had with him when I interviewed him for the Sessions panel. He's always in the moment, in the now. You know, a person that is a person that has regrets is a person living in the past. They regret what they did, and they always live with those regrets. They're living in the past all the time. A person that's constantly worrying or has anxiety is a person living in the future. They're worried about what will happen that hasn't happened yet. A person that is at peace with themselves is a person living in the moment all the time. That's where Steve Gadd is. <laughs> My gosh. All right, so number three, a performance which uh, you either played or witnessed that altered your musical course. And this is one that you witnessed, which was West Side Story by, by Buddy Rich. This was, I got to meet Buddy in 1971. Uh, my drum teacher here on Long Island, was the name, his name was Al Miller. And Al passed away uh, in, in the year 2000. Al was a, the teacher here on Long Island. He was a rudimentalist and he was a big band drummer. He was just a great guy, became a mentor and a dear friend. And um, well, you know, at 18 years old, I, you know, Al says to me, I want you to invite you to my house to meet a buddy friend of mine. I don't know what that means. He lived on suburban, suburban Long Island. Mm-hmm. I come by to, to, to meet him, and there's Buddy Rich in his living room. Al and Buddy were in the Marines together. They both were martial arts instructors. They were paired together for two years as friends, and because of that, they were very, very close. They went to the war together. Whenever Buddy was anywhere near the East Coast area, he would call up Al. Al would go and see him. I became one of Al's best students. Whenever he, Buddy called him, Al would then call me, and I would go with him to the concert. That's how I met Buddy. Wow. So we, we would sit backstage. So sitting backstage watching Buddy from a, a two to three feet area behind the curtain is I, I can remember every single performance because it was just so vividly clear on how beautiful he played all the time and his dedication. And when I heard him first play this arrangement of West Side Story, it was it was like. He weaved in and out of the change. West Side Story was written by Leonard Bernstein for the, the Broadway show and the movie West Side Story. The songs are just classic, you know, you know, you know, American standard songs. And when Buddy had that arranged for his big band, he wanted the song to weave throughout the entire score. So Buddy was playing all different types of feels throughout that and how he weaved that and worked that and then into the point where he played a drum solo and played this extended drum solo that created the feeling of the West Side Story battle, so to speak, the scene in the, that we remember, from all that, then to bring the band back in, he took you from a point of excitement to a, another point of exhilaration. To witness that, listen, if you're not sucked in to the, to the story of that music when you're hearing it, and you're not moving and, or your heart's not beating faster, you're freaking dead. Yeah. It's instead of, it, you got to listen to that. And having witnessed this, and of course I went to see Buddy 
well over 50 times with Al. And, and of course, he played that song a lot. And to constantly hear it, it was always a little different. It was always intense, and it always took you to exhilaration. I'm going to play a clip of it, even though, like you just said, it tells a whole story, so I'm not going to play the whole thing. But this is a performance from him at the Montreal Jazz Festival. Yeah, yeah. One of the many times he played it, but this is one of the first ones that came up on YouTube. Sure, sure, sure. did not read music. So he would listen to an arrangement and he had this oh. photographic memory. He would be able to listen to an arrangement once and learn it and I witnessed that also. I witnessed him rehearse a band. They played the chart once. A different drummer sat down and played the chart through reading, reading the music. But he sat and listened, got up on there, told the band he wanted it a little faster, then played the tune flawlessly, playing every kick and having ownership of the entire song. And then when he finished it, he ended it and said, guys, good. We'll open up with this tune tonight. And to witness that was, was again, another eye-opening you know, experience. When you did have your little conversations with him, when hanging out with Al and him, was he generous with his knowledge? Or were you kind of like, I'm not going to ask too many questions. I'm just going to kind of relish in the moment. He was, he was extremely generous. And you had to get him in the right mood. You know, they traveled a lot. So you know, this, this band was doing 300 plus dates a year. Mm-hmm. And, but Buddy was always polite. He was always kind. He was always giving. And if a question was asked, especially when it was with Al because they were close friends, when the question kind of came out, it was always Buddy would answer it. And backstage, you, know, you meet three types of people backstage with, 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 at a Buddy show. First, you meet all the best drummers. So backstage was always Morello, Tony Williams, Carl Palmer. It was, it was always, you know, Max Roach would walk in, Elvin. It was, it was, you know, Papa Joe Jones was always there. It was always amazing. Philly Joe Jones would stop by before his gig and hear a couple tunes and go out. So there was always this, this hangout of drummers. The second tier were the, all the different band leaders. There was always Duke Ellington, Count Basie, Benny Goodman, Stan Kenton, Artie Shaw, these guys would show up backstage because they, they wanted to go hear Buddy, so they were always back there. And the third tier of people was the Rat Pack. Sinatra, Sammy Davis, Jerry Lewis. So we'd go to these shows, you know, and when I would go home and, and, and come to my parents and say, well, boy, I met Jerry Lewis today. And my parents said, oh, stop it. Yeah. Jerry Lewis is a huge star. Why would you meet Jerry Lewis? I, I went to a, a show with Buddy Rich. Well, how would Jerry Lewis know? You, you wouldn't meet. And yeah. I, I'm telling you, I met Jerry Lewis. <laughs> So I'd say, hang on a second. So I'd call up Al at home. He had just got home from the... I said, Al, do me a favor. Would you tell my mom who we met tonight that she'd get on and Al would be there? And Al would say, oh, Mrs. Familaro. We, yeah, we met. Uh, we went to see Buddy Rich's show and, and Jerry Lewis was there. He's a, a drummer and he's Buddy Rich's daughter's godfather. Well, my mother was blown away. So 
this kind of happened. And when you started to experience the different levels of people that were there and then the music and the commitment to the music, man, there's a, there's a story behind there that's pretty powerful. To equate that to my experience talking to a lot of my favorite drummers and just people at the elite levels of their lives, there's definitely through lines, but overall, it's not like the same kind of people always reach the same amount of success. You can have your own work style, your own process on how to get there. I'm not sure if I'm articulating this well, but it's been reassuring the more people I talk to that you can still do your own way of doing things and you can still get to that elite level. So it's been really refreshing. And that's a point that's very important. Individuality is the success secret. Mm -hmm. That's the secret that you want to achieve. Because when you have that individuality, you stand out. If you stand out and you persevere and you become that constant student and you push yourself and you really work hard to achieve more individuality, you're going to stand out more. When you stand out more, that's going to attract you to people who are like-minded and you'll develop your own tribe of like-minded people. And before you know it, that tribe gets bigger and you're off to a level of success that only you could have experienced because you are you. Absolutely. All right, so this is the hardest one, and it's their, uh, your favorite drummer and how that drummer's overall body of work has affected them. And we have talked about Steve Gadd, um, and so I do have a clip of him and Chuck Mangione queued up, but if you wanted to talk about Jeff Beccaro, which is another one for the sake of time that you also mentioned, if you want to talk about Jeff to get him in here. Jeff, uh, I met Jeff in 1976. I moved out to California with a band to go out there and perform and work out in California. And while I was there, I went to uh, Les Demerle, who's another wonderful uh, drummer that's uh, living in, in Florida now. Les, is a, Les used to play with, um, with all these different great, great big bands. And he played with Harry James' big band. And Les had a studio, uh, a teaching studio, and a little theater called The Cellar in California. So I took some lessons with Les, and then his cellar had, it only fit like about maybe 80 people in, in the theater, but he had all different bands there, and he used to have Frank Zappa play there, and he would bring all these different bands in on like a Monday night, and these bands would come in. So I went there one Monday night to hear Zappa play, and when I go in there, there was only one seat that was available that was next to me, and in comes walking Jeff Beccaro, and he sits next to me. And as the band was playing and what they were going on, Jeff would be reaching over and grabbing my arm, he didn't know who I was. He grabbed my arm because of the intensity of where the music was going. So and again, we're both kind of reacting in the same way, like, oh, gee, this is incredible reacting. So Jeff turns over to me and goes, what's your name? I said, my name is Dom. He goes, I'm Jeff. I said, Jeff, nice meeting. I said, so, so Jeff says, man, it's, so we start talking afterwards. So Jeff says, come on, we got to go out for a drink. He said, you're from New York. I'm out here. We go out and we just hit it off. We, we just like the same people, the drummers, the musicians, we hit it off. And by meeting Jeff and his enthusiasm and his just zest for life was another incredible reward of what I've experienced in my life. There are many rewards that I have in people that have entered my life. And Jeff was one of them. And getting to know Jeff and hang out with Jeff and get to you know, speak to him and, and sit down and practice with him and talk about techniques and stuff and drumming and music and stuff was just an absolute adventure. And I speak about Rosanna only for the fact that Jeff was really one that understood history of music. Jeff could sing. He could literally sing all the solo parts with the soloist on any jazz album. You put on a Miles Davis recording, and Jeff could sing the melody, and then he would sing the solo that Miles was playing. That's how much he listened to these albums. When I mean sing the soloist, he would sing, with the soloist playing exactly the same thing. His ears was just how he took it in. So he would have that level of history. So when the Rosanna Groove was happening, 
he wanted to pull something that was unique. So he pulled from Bernard Purdy's shuffle. We used to talk about Bernard Purdy all the time, that Bernard Purdy shuffle that just had a pocket and a feel. And then, of course, Bonham and Fool in the Rain. We loved that shuffle, harder-edged shuffle. And Bonham, who was also a great jazz drummer, which people don't really realize, Bonham, who was a great, great jazz drummer, applied a lot of those jazz techniques because Bonham's two favorite drummers were Buddy Rich and Joe Morello. So Jeff realized that, so he listened to all those players. So we kept on going back to gather information to produce something different. That goes back to imitation, assimilation, and innovation, which Jeff was brilliant at. He imitated, assimilated, and then innovated. So when he took a little bit of Bernard Purdy and a little bit of John Bonham and then put like a Bo Diddley bass drum in there, and it just created this groove that is still... Many years after Jeff's death, he died in August of 1992, and I remember the day vividly well. And when that happened, you know, it, it, it changed, uh, you know, the, the world got a little, you know, less fun. He always made you want to move and dance, and, and, and every conversation was a laughing, you know, we, we laughed at every conversation and had fun. And it was just that level of loss that we had. But his music lives on and still is being studied many years after his death. Rosanna. that too is a lot of people don't play that intro correctly they make it too busy like the print not that the, the purdy shuffles too busy but they put too many of those ghost notes in there but jeff was good enough of a studio musician he's like no i'm still going to put those ghost notes in those turnarounds and kind of going back to the one but he's actually a lot more sparse than people realize because he's just that good you know as is gad what better way to create a feel than to imply mm imply the feel yep don't deliver exactly what it is imply the feel and let the listener be a part of that feel that they're kind of filling in the holes in their own mind so they're now getting involved it's like michelangelo never finished any of his works of art because he felt the viewer should be a part of the finishing process it's wow. kind of like it's kind of like that it's pretty powerful yeah <laughs> All right, so um, for the sake of time, I'm going to end with this one. And so it's a record that hit you at the right time in your, in your life and represents a big piece of your artistry. And you chose Chick Corea off the album The Leprechaun, and the song is Looking at the World. And again, it's Mr. Stephen Gadd. Again, what happened with this song? Why, why, this, uh, why I chose this for, the, for this time? And again, I've got many. I, I could have answered, you know, 10 or 15 songs for each category here. But I know. I put you on the spot. Sorry. <laughs> I, I love that. But why I chose this one here is because I was studying at the time in 1976 with Shelley Mann. Mm. And Shelley Mann was, you know, just a, a phenomenal musician. He was just a, a, a beautiful person. He was a professor in drumming. He knew techniques and concepts and playing and music. And he was just a phenomenal all-around, you know, gentleman. And in one of our lessons when he came in, he had the Leprechaun album with him and it had just come out. And he said, okay, Dom, today's lesson is we're going to listen to this album and we're going to analyze it and discuss it. So he puts the album on, a record, puts the record on, and we sit down there and we listen to the first tune and then he'd stop and say, what did you feel from that? And then I'd say what, what I did and I'd say, uh, Shelly, what, what did you feel from that? 
that he say what he felt. And of course, his answers were always deeper and, and much, much more, had way filled up with more wisdom in it, you know. And I go, wow, that was, you know. So he opened up my mind again. Then we go to the next track. And there was this one song, Looking at the World, where in the, in the, the, the middle part of that song is called the robust part, where the band goes, dun, 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 dun. In that part, Chick had the musical written out. But Steve didn't like drum parts. Steve liked the piano score. Chick told me, oh, no, Steve read the piano. I, I made a copy of my piano score and gave that to Steve. So Steve wanted to see the movement of the notes. He wanted to see the chord structures. He wanted to see everything to figure out what his drum part would be. So when he plays that part in the middle part of that, that robust part, Steve plays it like almost like a marimba player or a vibraphone player would play it on the drum set. He goes down his toms when Chick goes down the keyboard, and when Chick goes up the keyboard, Steve goes up the toms. It was like just so timed beautifully the way it was. Left his mind. All right. sitting with Shelly Mann, and we hear this part of looking at the world, and Shelly, like, jumps out of his seat, and he goes, holy damn, that is brilliant. Who the hell is this guy? <laughs> you know, and Steve was just hitting the scene. So, so it was like, oh, man. So then, you know, later on, and, and, and I was out in L.A. for a year, I go back to New York, and that's when I met up with Steve. He was, there was a session that I was playing, a little jingle session. He was in the next room. We happened to meet. Hey, how you doing? We started talking. You know, we started talking about some Italian stuff. We would, you know, and, and being, <laughs> oh, I love Italian. We go out to get some Italian food. Before you know it, I'm hanging out with Steve, and we're in this, in this, you know, this life together now. And just the, the gift of meeting. But he was always a regular guy, down to earth, quiet, calm, focused on his music of what he's doing. And it really was magical to experience how he thought and how he thinks and how he looks at music and takes it in fully. And again, reading those parts, being able to play all those parts, it was absolutely flawless and insane and Leprechaun, beautiful album. And just so you know, I mean, I had the wonderful opportunity for the Sessions panel to interview Chick Corea. So if you had a chance to go back oh, and wow. watch that interview with Chick Corea, because I speak about the first time I was introduced to Chick Corea, it was uh, Miles Davis, Bitches Brew, back in 1969. And I sat down and listened to it with Max Roach. That in itself, was a whole story, listening to Bitches Brew. When that thing came out with Miles, and on there was Billy Cobb and Tony Williams and Herbie Hancock, I mean, and Chick Corea was on that. You know, Miles put together an incredible team. We put that together, so I hear that with, with Max Roach. Then in the early 70s, I'm studying with Morello, and Morello brings in Light as a Feather, which was Chick Corea, 500 Miles High, which was one of the songs that went on and became a big hit. Mm -hmm. And that was Chick Corea with Aerto on percussion and Flora Perim singing and all these great artists that came on in that album was incredible and I sat and listened to that with Morello my teacher then 76 
all of a sudden now, Shelly Mann brings in Leprechaun. So I had the wonderful opportunity of hearing this, these Chick Corea things with my teachers because that was a part of the learning process and how they taught. And I still teach that way with my students. We still sit down and listen to be inspired to hear even parts of a song or a full song to take it in. You know, so that part of it was just kind of stepping into that world to be able to hear. So Chick Corea, listen to you know, My Spanish Heart, listen to Mad Hatter, listen to uh, the album called Friends, of course, Leprechaun, you know, these are uh, an album called Three Quartets. That is required listening to understand the bigger depth. And all of that is Gad playing differently in each of those. So you get to see the, the acting skills. You know, if someone's acting as a child in one movie, then they're acting as a teenager, then they're acting as an old man. All that might happen when they're, in their, when they're just in their 30s. You know, Dustin Hoppin was brilliant with that. You know, and how they play the different character. You have got to kind of evolve and, you know, you know, kind of step into that world. Well, drumming is like that. You've got to do the same thing. It's like, you know, actors that have this ability of being able to just change their being to be that character. Well, that's Gad. Absolutely. Well, I only have a few minutes left of you, and I want to be respectful of your time. Do you want to talk about the Why Hunger video real quick? Because I do want oh, to make sure people so know about that fundraiser. Yeah. Thank you so much. Why Hunger is an organization that was a not-for-profit organization that was started by Harry Chapin. Harry okay. Chapin was a great guitar player, singer, songwriter, wrote the song Taxi, Cats in the Cradle, had an incredible career. And I met Harry. He lived here on Long Island. I met Harry through Jim Chapin. Jim Chapin was his father. So I studied with Jim Chapin for many, many years. And after our lessons, Jim would say, let's go meet up with Harry. Well, in the early days, in the late 60s and early 70s, Harry was just a budding young guitar player, songwriter. Then Harry, you know, hit the song with uh, the song Taxi, became a number one seller. Now all of a sudden we're seeing Harry on the Johnny Carson show and all these, these, these you know, television shows. So we're blown away that Harry, the local Long Island guy, is doing so great. Harry starts traveling throughout the U.S. and throughout the world and starts to see people that are starving with no food. So he starts an organization called Why Hunger? His question was, why is there hunger? And the why stood for a World Hunger Year, which should be every year. So he starts Why Hunger to have a nonprofit. At his concerts, he would ask the people to bring food. So he'd go to Flint, Michigan, and ask 10,000 people to bring food. They'd all bring cans of food. At the end of the show, Harry would then start calling up homeless shelters and hospitals and police departments and whatever it was to come pick up this food. He would feed the village and then go to the next town and do it again. So he started Why Hunger so we could have more volunteers to help him be able to distribute this food. Harry then writes a song called Cats in the Cradle. It becomes the number one hit. He is huge. He then asks for a meeting in 1977 with President Carter. He's got this not-for-profit. He's feeding people. He meets with Carter to say, I'm feeding people. You as the government should be helping out. Carter gets involved and says, I'm with you. They put this together. Now they're feeding people. This is incredible. 1981, Harry gets killed in a car crash here on Long Island. That's a whole other story. Oh, my God. Bottom line is Harry passed away, but his Why Hunger organization continued. So in this continuing of what it was, 1981 he died. Here it is 2021. An old student of mine, Brian Resnick, had the idea that he wanted to donate money to Why Hunger. He said, Dom, I want to donate money to Why Hunger, but I also want to hopefully maybe put together a video that can have many different drummers playing to one song, and then from that we can raise money to add on to my donation and raise more money to feed people because during COVID, now more people are not eating because of the challenges of not working and not having even some places to live. So with that, 
I accept the challenge to say, Brian, I'm in. I start calling different people. We get over 100 drummers, 158 musicians total, string players, choruses, singers, a big band section. The song was, is come together. We were able to get the rights to that, which in itself is incredible to get the rights to a Beatles song. I wanted the song come together because of just that iconic groove. I call up Steve Gadd first. Once you get Steve Gadd, everybody else falls in line. <laughs> yeah. I speak to Jim Keltner. Jim Keltner calls up Ringo. We get Ringo. If all these drummers, Chad Smith and the Chili Peppers, everybody kind of joins in. We pull this off. Dave Weckl, Vinny Kalayuta, Steve Jordan, who's now out on the road with the Rolling Stones. Everyone put in their part. We edited this all together. It just came out a couple days ago. Whyhunger.org forward slash drum is where you can go to watch the video and donate money. We've already raised over $400,000, but we need more money. So I ask everyone to go there and watch it. It's also on YouTube. Go find the video, whyhunger.org forward slash drum. Check it out and be involved in the commitment of trying to help and do something great with the potential and power of our talent and our music. I love it. And that link will be in the show notes. So if anyone's listening, what Dom just said, it's just click the button. And uh, Dom, it was it was such a pleasure talking to you. I appreciate you so much uh, personally and then also for being on the show. So uh, I hope you have a great day, man, and, and be safe. And thank you again. Thank you so much, Ben. This is very, very enjoyable. I go on now. My, my next session is a master class I'm giving to 75 students in the Ukraine and Russia. So I'll go on and do that, and it'll continue on from my studio here in Long Island. I'm going to continue on as long as I have the health and the desire and the passion, which if we're involved in greater purpose, like we are trying to feed people and using our music and learning about music, this will be a great ride. So I thank you so much for your talent and your ability of putting this all together, and uh, I hope to meet you in person someday real soon. Ditto. All right. Bye, Dom. Bye-bye. All right. That's the show. Again, rest in peace, Dom. Be kind to each other. And I hope Dom's positivity and enthusiasm seeps into your life. I'll talk to you soon. Bye.